Well, guys, we're going to keep going in our study of church history, and we began last week in earnest uh, a more particular focus on some of the early church heresies that emerged, uh, primarily emerging in the, well, that's not really right to say they began to emerge in the second and third century. They really were uh, with us all along, but in some of their particular forms or particular manifestations, um, you can kind of point to some of the writings that emerged against these heretical teachings um, in the in the latter part of the first century and then on into the second century for sure and and even into the third century, these early heresies. And we talked about how these these heresies, these heretical doctrines that that were really assaults from within the church. You have the assaults from outside the church that came in the form of uh, uh, state-based persecution, for example, of, of legal constraints against the gospel, of of those uh, in the Roman Empire that would come against the Christian faith for various reasons, civil and otherwise. But this, this was the, the, these heretical teachings were what really affected the church from within. And we we spent some time a few weeks ago talking about the nature of false teaching, and how sinister it is, and how deceptive it is, and how how false teaching can assume so many varied shapes and forms in such a way that it can appeal to a vast array of temperaments, of points of interest, of backgrounds, of particular you know, doctrinal preferences, whatever you might be, that false teaching has a way about it that allows it to be incredibly effective at deceiving people. Because it can take on so many varied shades and forms and, and, and find its way to a particular place of appeal of our, of our flesh or a place of vulnerability in our spiritual formation and our spiritual maturity. And then it can wreak this, this havoc. And it's, it's always in the form of something that appears right. Uh, it appears true. In fact, you have uh, Irenaeus, this quote that we mentioned, I think, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Error never shows itself in its naked reality in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. And that's the nature of, of false teaching that, it, that makes its way and really kind of is, is, is in, in some way enabled to sort of take root and to, and to begin to bear its sort of its sinister fruit. Uh, we're not talking about the kinds of things that might come and go as flashes and, and are immediately identified and, and, and sort of purged from either a local church or a local body of believers or the church at large in some way. We're talking about things that actually were able to take root and have some very destructive impact in the life of the church. Of course, we looked at um, Gnosticism a couple of weeks ago, and we saw you know, how this kind of took, took shape and, and had some impact on the church early on in the 2nd century. In fact, you have a lot of New Testament material that's really uh, addressing this Gnostic heresy, this, this belief and this secret knowledge, this initiation into this mystery that was really the pathway to salvation. And really the, the, the sort of the Christianizing of this Gnostic heresy that preceded, obviously, the time of Christ but it was this, this general idea of, of this secret knowledge that you had to, had to obtain, that you had to acquire, that had to be really passed on to you by an elite group 
an elite teacher of some sort. And really, this is, this is very much equated with what you might see in the New Age movement in a few, a few decades ago, or what's called the New Spirituality Today, where it's multifaceted, it doesn't necessarily follow some strict, clear, principled, doctrinal pattern per se, but it's unified around this idea of some higher knowledge that leads to some understanding or version of salvation, of enlightenment or something of that sort. And Gnosticism basically adopted various characteristics or teachings from Christianity and infused it with this idea of of this higher knowledge or this secret knowledge. Um, it had elements of it like dualism and, and seeing that God was two oppo- there was two different opposing forces in the universe and, and really equating uh, the God of salvation, the God of Christ um, as the good God, and then the lower God was the God who created the, the, the fallen world, that matter was evil, but the spirit was good. These kinds of things were part of, of the teaching. Uh, ultimately, it denied the incarnation, it denied the resurrection. It ultimately led to these moral extremes. On one hand, it would be sort of a self-denial of, of anything physical, any kind of physical pleasure, because the physical world, the material universe, and the physical body was inherently evil. And so you had this asceticism, this, this, this self-denial, this abstinence of anything uh, of, of, that could be characterized as physically indulgent of, in some way. Or you had the other extreme that that could lead to, which would be a hedonism. Because if the body is bad and the spirit is good, and the body can't touch what is good in the spirit, what does it matter? Just let yourself go. Indulge all your carnal cravings because it doesn't really matter. It led to both of these kinds of extremes. Well, We have a transition today to another heretical doctrine. Uh, or another heretical system, if you will, that has shades of Gnosticism associated with it. Um, it's, it's referred to as Marcionism, and it's, it's named after Marcion, who was sort of this, the founder, or the, the propagator of this, this heretical teaching. A little bit of information about Marcion. Uh, he was born in, in Sinope, uh, in the province of Pontus, which is uh, in, in, in modern-day Turkey, right off the coast of the Black Sea in about 85 A.D. Um, he was the son of a bishop, so he grew up in the church in the context of a Christian church and a Christian environment. Um, one writer characterized Marcion as intelligent, capable, hard, unbending, vain, rich, and ambitious. So that's kind of some characteristics of this man. Um, he apparently derived a great amount of wealth from his, his family's very lucrative shipbuilding business. So it wasn't just a family of the church, uh, a, you know, a clerical or clerical family, but there was, a, there was wealth in this family, and he, he was able to bring some of that wealth to Rome. He made his way to Rome in about 135 A.D. and was there for a period of time. He was actually accepted into the church at Rome, um, as, a, as a believer, he was, he was allowed to, I guess, partake in, in membership there. Um, he actually gave a very large gift to the church in Rome, like a, a significant gift. Uh, some would estimate it's like a year's worth of earnings that he gave to the church in one gift. And so it earned him a little bit of, of uh, credibility and, and possibly more than it should have earned him, but it's, nonetheless, it, he gained some influence 
uh, as a generous um, as a generous man. Um, it didn't last long, though. He wasn't there very long before his heretical teaching uh, became known, and he. He, his, he was excommunicated from the church in Rome in about 144 A.D. So he shows up about 135 to 139, sometime in that time frame, and by 144, he's booted out for his heretical teachings out of the church in Rome, and his gift is promptly returned to him. So this, this influence, um, in other words, the church fortunately was not able to be bought, for example, in, in this case, because his gift was returned to him. Uh, he was one of the most successful heretics, though, I mean, this is a man who had great success um, in, in growing a church around his heretical teachings. Um, so much so that you had a wide array of, uh, of early church writers coming after him. You had what would be considered somewhat of an anomaly where you've got the, 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 the Greek church and the Latin church both unifying around their attacks against Marcion. Um, you had people like um, Polycarp, who called him the firstborn of Satan. So gives you a little indication of his opinion of him. Um, you had uh, Justin Martyr. You had Irenaeus. You had Clement. You had uh, Clement of Rome. You had Tertullian. You had Hippolytus. And you had Origen, all of them writing against, uh, against Marcion. So... He was very, very widespread in his, in his effect, so much so that it, it garnered that much uh, sort of counter-assault, counter-attack in terms of the writing that was forged against him. Uh, after he was excommunicated, he traveled all around the world. Of course, a man of means, he was able to travel. He was able to kind of you know, do this, uh, this work of cultivating this church that he was starting um, had, had the funds and the resources to be able to do this. And so he traveled around the world as a missionary for his own version of Christianity. Um, and he won a lot of converts. Uh, he was a very powerful force and actually forged a, a, what you might consider maybe a denomination of sorts. I mean, he was able to um, start churches and, and, and convert people to his version of Christianity. According to Tertullian, another one who wrote a lot against him, he said that he planted churches as wasps make nests. So that's how vast it was. He says he was teaching men to, quote, deny that God is the maker of all things in heaven and earth, and the Christ predicted by the prophets is his son. We'll talk about that in a little bit as we look at his doctrine. But Tertullian obviously indicating this, this is a man who, even in spite of his out-and-out heretical teaching, was able to garner a tremendous following, and he ascribed that his effectiveness is as, as effective as wasps making nests. As you know, how, you know how that's like. You know, you one day you got onto your back porch and everything's fine, and the next th- next day you go out there and you start seeing some things buzzing around. And you start kind of looking around, and there there's something there that wasn't there just you know the day before. So you kind of get the uh, the imagery that Tertullian is is painting for us. Uh, Marcion's church was rigorous, it was demanding, uh, it was inspiring, it's inspired fellowship, it was very well organized, and for about a century it was pretty successful. So we're not talking about a flash in the pan kind of situation here, we're talking about a very effective, growing, thriving, well organized church, in essence. Now when I, I, I use the term church very loosely here, but that's, that's what happened, and it was, it was it had about a, a full century run. 
um, early on in the, in, the, in the life of the church. Now, in terms of the doctrine, um, and as we've said before, uh, the strands of false teaching, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes. Nothing new under the sun. So I want you to just be listening to some of these doctrinal positions and, and just draw your own connections. We're going to get a lot, a lot more specific. Probably next week, I'm probably going to spend quite a bit of time um, teasing some of this out in terms of thinking about it in our modern-day context. I think there's some important things for us to, to step into as it relates to this. But just think about it as we go through this, um, how, how you could easily see uh, modern-day strands or sort of leaning toward uh, Marcion ideas, Marcion belief, Marcion priorities, if you will. Um, so in terms of his doctrine, uh, he was very much influenced by Gnosticism, although there was some clear distinctions from, uh, that distinguished his beliefs from a pure Gnostic version of Christianity that we've talked about in past weeks. Um, he did have a certain dualism in his view, but it was distinct. Listen to what Kenneth Scott Lauderat said about his, his dualism in particular. He says, Marcion is reported to have been influenced by one of the Gnostics, and Gnostic conceptions can be found in him, but much in his teaching was quite distinct from Gnosticism. To be sure, with the Gnostics, he was, in, he was a sharp dualist, but he drew the dualistic line in somewhat different fashion from them, and his explanation of dualism was quite at variance from theirs. Unlike them, he did not profess to possess a secret body of knowledge. Now, now just think about this for a second. Listen to what Listen to how the, the, the formation of his doctrine plays out in light of this particular statement, that he did not claim to have you know, a secret type of knowledge, okay? like, like the Gnostics overtly did. So the Gnostics were overt about it, is the idea. So, he says, so, so Lauderette says, unlike them, he did not profess to possess a secret body of knowledge. Like them, however... And indeed, like Christian churches as a whole, he was deeply concerned with the salvation of men. This, however, he conceived to be not as did the Gnostics through initiation into a mystery, but by simple faith in what he believed to be the gospel. He held that the gospel had been lamentably distorted by the church as he knew it. And he sought to recall the latter to what he was profoundly convinced was the simplicity and truth of the good news. Remember what we talked about when we looked at, uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, and the nature of false teachers, oftentimes they are self-deceived. They, they don't come to us knowing that their intent is to deceive, necessarily. They're passionate in their convictions and believing that their way is the right way. And in fact, Marcion, in this description of Marcion, gives a very good picture. He was on a mission. He was on a mission of the salvation of men. And he believed that that the simple gospel, as he understood it, was the way to salvation. And so he was passionate about spreading that message, convinced that it was the simplicity and truth of the good news that was the salvation of men. So we're not talking about someone who approached people with 
odd or sinister motives, clearly obvious intent. In fact, his approach would have been very much oriented toward evangelistic witness of the New Testament church, interested in, in proclaiming a saving message, a message that you, you must understand and you must believe in order to be saved and be reconciled to God. But it was the simple faith that he believed to be the gospel, not the gospel itself. So let's talk about a little bit of what this, what this was like for him and, and, and some of his beliefs. So at the core, probably this is the core um, root, if you will, of his belief. He had many, many errors um, that stemmed from this. But at the core, Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament and of the Jews is an evil God and was therefore clearly not the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's your starting point. Basically, he had a hard time coming to terms with the God that he interpreted or understood from the Old Testament and the God that he interpreted or understood from the New Testament. They, they seemed to him, in other words, that, that was an irreconcilable, unbridgeable divide in his mind. And as it goes, and as it often can go, in being led into or deceived by some strand of false teaching, rather than do anything to present what appears to be contradiction and thus imperil the compelling nature of the message you're trying to present, you have to take some measures to eliminate what appears to be contradiction. So, what do you do, for example, with doctrines in the Old Testament and reconciling them with what might appear to some to be contradictory to the New Testament? What do you do with that? What's the right path to, to deal with that? Well, what often is the case is men decide what's going to work for their objective, and then they toss out what doesn't work. They, they either toss it out in the form of, of ascribing it to something that is mythical in nature or it wasn't meant to be literal or something like that, or they just toss it out altogether as part of an entirely different system. So Marcion went the path of ascribing to the Old Testament God himself as being not the God of, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was an evil God. Marcion argued that the world which contains the suffering and cruelty, which is all around us, which everybody can see, has to be the work of some evil being. It can't be the work and the creation of the loving God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be some, some other being. And this is where this Gnostic influence comes in, where he's, he's willing to embrace a dualistic view of the Godhead in some way. So he believed that this God, this Old Testament God, created the world with all of its revolting evils. So he would likely go to, for example, the Old Testament in Genesis and the record of the fall, and he would have a hard time reasoning in his mind because obviously if you're, if you're the final arbiter of what is rational and reasonable, 
and you can't come to terms in your mind with something, then you've got to do something to eradicate the contradiction. So he likely could not come to terms with the idea of what took place in the garden for that to even be a possibility if God was truly good. It's the old problem of evil. How can there be evil and God be all-powerful and all good? How can, that, how can those things coexist? How can God not be the author of evil when he's the creator of everything and before there was sin in the world, there was perfection and he enabled this environment? In other words, all these questions that come about when you look at what took place in the garden and the problem of evil, in his mind, I'm sure he came to a place to say, you can't reconcile that, so we've got to do something different here. We've got to go a completely different path. So, a very clean path would be to say, that's a whole different deal going on there. A whole different deal. So that's the direction that he went. So the God created this, this Old Testament God, this God that was, that was in essence evil. He created this world with all of its evil in it. And he created men, both body and spirit. So there's another distinction. He created men, both body and spirit, who ultimately were, were evil too. So he didn't, he didn't ascribe to man's spirit some pristine holiness like the Gnostics did in separating the spirit which is good with material, earthly, fleshly man which is bad. He said that it was all bad. It was all sinful. And he said that the, the God, this God was vindictive. He was a God of war and bloodshed of judgment, of wrath, and in no way did he resemble the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he didn't just ascribe, he didn't just, he didn't just see all the, the difficulties with reconciling the evil and sin in the world and a holy and righteous creator God. He didn't, he didn't just see that as a problem to be reconciled. He actually ascribed to this creator a certain character that was manifest, clearly manifest in the Old Testament accounts because it's a it's a it's a uh, documents that are loaded with bloodshed and conquest and murder. Even the whole sacrificial system was just a, 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 a complete bloodbath in his mind, and it was all about God's vind- this this uh, this this Old Testament God, this evil God's his vindictive nature and his his desire to keep people under his thumb in in fear of judgment and wrath. So there was no correspondence to that God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what about the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Marcion would argue that he was hidden until he revealed himself through Christ. So, he was unknown to man prior to this time. He was a God of pure love, of pure mercy, of goodness and grace. And and that goodness and grace and mercy was manifest explicitly toward his, his act of revealing himself in Christ and making a way for man to be delivered from this God of the Old Testament, this evil, vindictive God. He even used the the term demiurge, which is a Gnostic term to describe this Old Testament being. 
Now, here's the other divergence. He had a, a heretical Christology. He, he, believed, he didn't believe that, that Christ was incarnate, that God came in human form, fully God, fully man. He, he, did, he totally denounced that because that would be God embodying corruption because body and spirit was corrupt and that couldn't possibly be. In other words, he could not, he could not be born of a woman because that would make him a part of this evil God's existence. That would make him the product of this evil God's existence. Rather, Christ basically appeared as a man, but did not show up in his appearance as a man uh, until the time as, uh, he was an adult. So he adopts what's referred to as docetism or docetism that we'll talk about in a future time. But it's an it's a, it's a errant view of, of who Christ is. And so he came down from heaven in, in, in to reveal himself as this, this good, benevolent, gracious, loving God, this God of all love. He began teaching and proclaiming this new kingdom and deliverance from this evil, vindictive Old Testament God and all of his rules and regulations. And what happened was that those who were loyal to the Old Testament God crucified Christ. So it was the work of this Old Testament God that resulted in the crucifixion of Christ. But they unwittingly contributed to the deliverance that would come as a result of that crucifixion because the price that had to be paid to this demiurge, this Old Testament vindictive evil God, was the sacrifice of Christ. So you see how it's just it's, it's internally contradictory. It, 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 you can start, this thing starts falling apart on itself. Um, so it's not like this, this man came up with this beautifully coherent system that just eliminated all apparent contradictions that you might see in the Old Testament or difficult doctrines or difficult, hard to understand or interpret points in redemptive history or whatever it might be. His, his systems, it's got internal contradictions and incoherencies all the way through. But, I mean, I, I guess what I'm getting at is if he only appeared to be a man, then how could he have been crucified? I mean, I, I'm, I'm having trouble sorting that one out. But, nevertheless... Um, so, so he, so they, the, these, these loyalists to this Old Testament vindictive God contributed to the defeat of the Old Testament God unwittingly, because this was the price that had to be paid, and it was it was the price that the God of love paid to purchase men from the bondage of this Old Testament demiurge, this Old Testament evil God. And all that God asks of men, this God of love, is that they have faith in response to his love. So, a heavy, heavy emphasis on God being purely and exclusively a God of love, as opposed to anything else. Sounding, is it sounding familiar to you at all about manifestations of that in our day and time, right? as though there is a contradiction between love and judgment, as though those two ideas are inherently contradictory. Like, there's the first mistake. To begin to ascribe a contradiction, an inherent and necessary contradiction between love and judgment. 
I would just simply say, has any of you ever done anything in your parenting that would be characterized as this blending, inextricable blending and combination of love and judgment all at the same time? I mean, it's not hard to get there. But for Marcion, he couldn't couldn't deal with that in, in terms of the attributes or character or nature of God. Well, this led him to adopt certain views of Scripture. Surprise, surprise, right? I mean, you've got a lot of work to do with the Scripture if you're going to believe these things about who God is and who Christ is and what He did and what salvation is about and and all these things. So, step one, he threw out the Old Testament. So, in other words, the Old Testament had no place at all in the life and understanding and growth and development and application of the Christian or the Christian church. Just threw it out. Second, he adopted a truncated version of Luke's gospel. Just Luke's gospel. So in other words, when I mean truncated, I mean diminished, edited down. Because all the other gospel writers had too much Jewish influence in them. Too much Old Testament context and reference in them to be valid. So they had to be thrown out. And Luke's was edited down to eliminate things like, oh, I would say maybe Luke 1 and 2. Those kinds of things, right? Um, So you end up with Old Testament gone, a truncated version of Luke, and then some edited versions of Paul's epistles. Because Paul got it. Paul understood this disjunction between law and grace, right? That's Paul's doctrine. That that law is law is something in the past. It's old and gone and forgotten. That, that's that's Paul's teaching, right? Paul understood grace. New day is dawned, and grace and law. There's no intersection between the two. So he he had some edited versions of Paul's epistles. So there was a Marcion Bible, in fact, and it was this compilation of these things uh, to 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 fit the doctrine. Here's what Irenaeus says about all of this in his writing Against Heresies. I love the simplicity of the book titles back in that day. He wrote a book, and it's called Against Heresies, in case you're wondering what it's about. He says, Marcion of Pontus developed his teaching shamelessly, blaspheming the God whom the law and the prophets proclaimed, describing him as the author of evils, desirous of wars, changing his opinions, and at different times contrary to himself. But Jesus was from the Father who was above the God that formed the world and came into Judea in the time of Pontius Pilate, who was procurator of Tiberius Caesar. Manifest in human form to those who were in Judea, he abolished the prophets and the law and all the works of that God who made the world, whom he called the world ruler. In addition to this, he mutilated the gospel according to Luke removing everything about the birth of the Lord and much of the teaching in the, in the words of, of the words of the Lord, in which the Lord is recorded as clearly confessing the creator of the universe as his father. A little problem there, right? You've got to get that stuff out of there. He persuaded his disciples that he was more voracious than the apostles who handed down the gospel, giving them not a gospel but a mere fragment of a gospel. He also similarly cut up the epistles of Paul, removing whatever the apostles said clearly about the God who made the world, that he is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and whatever the apostle teaches by referring to the prophetic writings that predict the coming of the Lord. 
So that's kind of Irenaeus summing up what I just kind of went through in bullet point fashion. That's how he got to his authoritative document, his scripture, his Bible. Now, in all things, the Lord God is sovereign, right? In all things, the Lord God works in the affairs of men with competent, confident, perfect providential control, right? So this only led to the church refining its understanding and doctrine of Scripture and, and, and really recognizing the canon of Scripture. So we're going to talk about canonicity in, in a future time. But this, this, all, all this did was stimulate more clarity amongst the people of God in the church. This, this Marcion Bible. Kevin DeYoung said this, when all the cutting and pasting was finished, this is a key point, when all the cutting and pasting was finished, Marcion had the Christianity he wanted. A God of goodness and nothing else. A message of inspiring moral uplift. A Bible that does away with the uncomfortable bits about God's wrath and hell. And that's what Marcion did. And that was his approach. And again, I press the question, does any of this seem vaguely familiar to our day and time and what we run up against all the time? What is a common common temptation of men. Pastors, teachers, leaders of churches all have to battle with pride and the fear of man and the desire for the applause of man and the worldly measures that point to success all have to battle against that, have to slay those elements of the flesh just like anybody else. And to the extent that those leaders are not winning that battle, all kinds of accommodation, all kinds of compromise with the culture at large can happen in the life of the church. Well, we have clear, I'm just going to cite a few passages of Scripture, again, that, that weren't even included in Marcion's Bible, but you know they were a part of the, the, the canon of Scripture. That just you know state emphatically uh, make statements emphatically against this. I mean, you have Jesus' statement where he's rebuking unbelievers. This is this is one way that Jesus rebuked those who were persisting in unbelief that he was who he said he was. In John chapter five verses forty six to forty seven, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And that's a rebuke against unbelief, and pointing to the writings of Moses that all speak of him. Or you have Jesus' powerful statement, uh, really at the beginning, near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, at minimum, you can say that there was not this complete abolishment of anything related to the law and the prophets by Christ. And yet, that is the explicit teaching of the Marcion heresy. This is a separate deal. 
Christianity is a completely and entirely separate deal. It's a new thing. It's a new covenant. So there'll be, a, there'll be the adoption of New Testament terminology to make the point, but take the point way beyond what Scripture would, would teach. Or you have the Apostle Paul and the gospel, uh, his, his gospel, his sort of summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That would be a reference to the Old Testament, by the way. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There's the gospel in a nutshell, and he's, a, he's ascribing what was passed on to him as in accordance to what was written in the Old Testament Scriptures. So you can clearly see, and we obviously we all know, that there is no throwing out of the Old Testament for the Christian believer. And we're going to talk about this more in, in, in next week. We're going, to, we're going to get more deeply into this. But to kind of transition our thinking toward what we're going to get into next week, I want to read a couple of excerpts from some articles. This was written in 2009. So if, the, if any of you are sort of keeping current on, on some modern or some current day controversy around this very issue, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but we'll talk about it probably next week a little bit more in more detail. This was written several years ago. So this, this, this uh, sort of leaning toward Marcionism is not new. I mean, it predates 2009 as well, but I just make the point that this is something that was written by Kevin DeYoung back in 2009 in an article entitled Marcionism and the New Mood. He says, there's a new mood in evangelicalism. The new mood can be found in emergent writers like Brian McLaren who speak mockingly about the wrath of God and dismissively about the reality of eternal punishment. The new mood can be found in Christian academics who marginalize or even deny the concept of penal substitution. The new mood can be found in megachurch pastors who argue that the essence of Christianity is that Jesus, quote, shows us the best way to live, end quote. The new mood can be found in bestsellers like The Shack with its claims that the Bible doesn't teach you to follow the rules. That's a quote from the book. God doesn't need to punish sin. And the the biblical portrayal of God's justice is caricatured as a bloodthirsty God who runs around killing people all the time. The new mood is squeamish about hell and uncomfortable with God's wrath. The new mood envisions a Christianity where the attribute of God's love eclipses all other attributes, especially God's justice and power. The new mood tells the Christian story not first of all or at all as good news about a substitute who saves us from the wrath of God, but as a message which means to inspire us to live a life of sacrifice and shalom, of peace. In other words, the essence of Christianity is you modeling all the fine, noble attributes of Christ to live a life, live your best life now, in peace and harmony and sacrifice and serving others. Forget about God's burning fury and wrath against your sin and that requiring atonement. Forget about that. That's not what Christianity is about. The idea of recasting Christianity, he goes on, for a new day in softer, gentler hues, more focused on the life of Jesus instead of the death of Jesus, sounds familiar, does it not? 
Listen to some of the country's most popular preachers or some of the loudest voices in the emergent conversation or to some of the best-selling Christian books and you will find that Marcionism is alive and well. The new mood is not that new after all. And then in another article entitled On Modern Day Marcionism, uh, it's, another, it's, a, it's an article on modern-day Marcionism, and I love the title. The title of this article is, The Marcians Have Landed. <laughs> a warning for evangelicals. This is by Carl Truman, who's a professor of theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. And he, this is at the end of this article. This is sort of a summary statement. And this is what I want to leave us with, and this is where we're going to jump into next week. This is the, some of these ideas. So he, he basically elucidates a lot of the points, you know, similar points that I just read from Kevin DeYoung's article, sort of lamenting and, and, and stating some of the strands of this Marcion heresy that you find prevalent today, and this emphasis on one aspect of God or on the nature of the gospel and the outworkings of the gospel in the life of the believer as something less than what it actually is conveyed in Scripture. So he elucidates all of these points, and then he comes to this sort of this conclusion. He says, so what will be the long-term consequences of this Marcionite approach to the Bible? Ultimately, I think it will push the God who is there back into the realm of the unknowable and make our God a mere projection of our own psychology and our worship simply into group therapy sessions where we all come together to pretend we are feeling great. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Take that identity away, and what do we have left? As the Old Testament is the context for the New Testament, so the neglect of of the Old Testament leaves the New Testament as more or less meaningless. As our reading, our sermons, and our times of corporate worship neglect and sometimes simply ignore the Old Testament, we can expect a general impoverishment of church life, And finally, a total collapse of evangelical Christendom. Indeed, there are mornings when I wake up and think it's already all over, and that the church in the West survives more by sheer force of personality, by hype, and by marketing ploys, rather than by any higher power. That's a powerful statement. We need to grasp, once again, who God is in His fullness. We need to grasp who we are in relation to Him. And we need teaching and worship which gives full-orbed expression to these things. And this will only come when we in the West grow up, ditch the designer gods we build from our pick-and-mix Bible where consumer, not creator, is king, and give the whole Bible its proper place in our lives, thinking, and worship. Think truncated thoughts about God and you'll get a truncated God. Read an expurgated Bible, and you get an expurgated theology. Sing mindless, superficial rubbish instead of deep, truly emotional praise, and you will eventually become what you sing. So we're living in a day and time in which the vast array of Christian thinking, I would argue, has at least shadows of Marcionism associated with it if not more explicit ties to Marcion positions. And the impact of this is enormous in our day and time. 
And again, going back to the nature of false teaching itself, I, I use this almost insulting way to describe it, but no false teacher shows up at your doorstep and says, I'd like to have coffee with you because I want to deceive you and lead you on a quick path to hell with my false teaching. They show up elegantly, articulate, well thought, clear, coherent, convicted, and not completely disassociated from gospel truth either. And yet we have to be very, very careful about what we're exposed to, what we're hearing, what we're seeing. And we have to continue to figure out what being salt and light in this context needs to look like. And I can tell you that harsh polemics and aggressive assaults against other people who would otherwise believe themselves to be fellow Christians and brothers and sisters with you is not my recommended tactic. It's got to be something altogether different. And that's what I want to kind of dig into next week as we talk about it. So any final thoughts or comments before we close in prayer? Just a question. It was raised a bishop's son. Yeah. Is there any um, information on what he was taught at all? I, I mean, there might be. I, I, I read quite a bit. I read like five different sort of bios from different historians. And I didn't, I didn't find anything specific about his, his father, for example. It might be out there somewhere, but I never came across it in, in my time. So. Yeah. Everything, by the way, just to note, um, virtually everything we have on Marcion, it comes in the form of, of, writings against his teaching. So that big statement I read from Irenaeus is you know, one indication of how that information has come to us. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, I just read an article this week um, about a local megachurch pastor who is saying we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And, Did you? Um, <laughs> that, you know, it doesn't matter to him if there was a virgin birth because if you can predict your own death and resurrection, and it went through the whole teachings of Marcion in there. So it was just interesting to come and have greater death. I'm wondering if you should teach next Sunday because, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's that's... And sadly, like you were saying, I mean, this is this is the pastor that the Lord actually used to save me. Yeah. And he was teaching from yeah. the Old Testament at the time. And so it's just... It's just sad to me because I think there has been this downgrade of self-deception, like you said. Yeah. And I want to be very careful about how we sort of address these things because I think that you can, you can paint with really broad brushes here and you can sweep up faithful, godly people into your attack and serve the kingdom of God in no good way. So that's, that's why, I, I mean, I... That's why I'm not ready yet. I, I need some more time to kind of work this out a little bit and think through this before I even want to talk about it significantly. I mean, I could read articles and just you know read what someone else said to you, but um, but I'm I'm not quite ready to to really dive into it because I I I I, I want to kind of cite some of these some of these realities and then have us think about well what do we do about it? Like what what's the what I mean? Do we just want to cite it to you know, cite it, which is not what I'm saying you're doing, by the way. 
you're, you're back basically tying into where we're headed. Um, but I think that we have, you know, a responsibility. I think, in fact, week before last, Isaac was probably asking a question about this very thing, I, I think. I mean, I didn't talk to him afterwards, but he's, he's trying to figure out how to engage in fruitful conversation with people who are kind of involved in ministries like this that, that um, you know, that raise concern at minimum about, you know, the nature of the gospel and, and their understanding of it and all that sort of stuff. So, so it's important for us to, to really understand, like I said, what salt and light means for us in this, in this context. Yeah, please. Well, hang on. I believe what you're hitting on is we should never attack an individual, even if they are a rank heretic. Yeah. Never attack an individual. We need to know this That's right. so well when I hear somebody say something like, I've got to unhitch the old from the new, not one red flag, but hundreds of red flags pop up in front of my face because I'm not going to listen to this man, woman teaching at all so that we are guarded against that. Um, because that man is very genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, I've listened to a number of series that he taught on this. But we don't attack him. We equip ourselves to know the truth and know the truth so well that uh, immediately, immediately when I hear that, I know it's wrong. And I know why it's wrong. At the same time, Jude commands us to fight for the faith. Mm-hmm. But you don't fight for it by taking somebody down. Yeah. You fight for it by knowing the truth. Yeah. And I think we have to be mindful also of the fact that there's, there's certain uh, implications for us um, in terms of how we function as a local fellowship versus how we sort of address and be, are mindful of and are informed about things that are going on in sort, sort of the church at large and what the implications for us are as it relates to that. So we've got we to gotta be you know, wise about, about how we you know, approach these matters. I mean, if we were, if we were dealing with a, you know, someone in our own church who had started a small group and started going down this path, the, the, the process would be, swift and aggressive to deal with it. And that's a different situation altogether. Um, and we need to just be mindful of those things too. So yeah, I mean, this is, this, is, uh, this, is, this is today, this is now, this is current articles that have been written, right? Yeah. You were going to say something, I think, Caleb, or did you? I, I was just going to say that, I mean, as far as the, the, how he could have even gone down that road, which I think is always prone to us too, is I mean, you just mentioned him financially having success, having a lot of money, but anytime you, you kind of are successful in this world, the tendency is always going to be, <clears throat> you know, how can I um, sustain that success? And I think for a lot of us, too, even if we have good intentions as far as gospel-centered work, um, anytime we reach success and we think it has something to do with us, the tendency is always to how can I sustain that? And so I think possibly for him, and I know definitely for I mean, the temptation for me a lot of times is how can I mention the good stuff and leave out the bad stuff to sustain that success? Yeah. And I think, I mean, like, like we said with uh, major church pastors nowadays, I think a lot of them, they've tasted that success of a big church and articles written about their success of, of being a pastor. Mm-hmm. And their, their mind goes straight to how can I sustain the success? And I mean, the exponential decline of our culture because of uh, social media and uh, self-centered living 
it's just kind of leading down that road of, you know, in order to sustain that, you're going to have to let your doctrine theology drop just as fast as the culture is. Yeah, you, I, I was thinking about that this weekend, about just th- these these sort of the allurement of worldly measures of success and how that plays into so many, so much of this, all throughout history, but, you know, even in our day and time. And I started thinking, you know, it's interesting when you think about um, success in those terms, and then you look at what happened to, for example, Christ himself, to Peter, the apostle to the Jews, to Paul, the apostle to the Gentile. I mean, that's not, that's not how that story should have ended if they were really going to be successful, quote-unquote, right? So sometimes you, end up, sometimes you end up being successful by standing utterly alone on the truth. And no one is with you. And no one is supporting you. And no one's applauding you. I mean, that's, that's just, it's about the truth. We've talked about that before, too. It's about what is true. Um, and, you know... Applause of men or not is kind of it's kind of an irrelevant issue in that regard. So, yeah, I, I did find a series of sermons by Jack Hughes that he did last fall on. I think it's called like Old Testament Survey. There's six or seven sermons I think where he goes in like great depth as to why the Old Testament should not be unhitched mm-hmm. from the New. If anyone, you know, if you wanted really detailed um, teaching on. Yeah. How that's not true. Good. Yes, ma'am. Um, you said something about Marcin's father, and we know who this pastor we just talked about. We know who his father is and his ministry in Atlanta, and I just wonder how he's fallen so far from. Not that we everything his father says may be correct or not. I don't know, but I'm just saying we know the connection there. I'll take a shot at that next week. Okay. I have some ideas about that. Um, not so much on a personal knowledge level, but just sort of some assumptions I think you can make um, if you understand kind of what the thrust of that ministry really is. And it's, 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 it's a reaction to some things. It's a clear reaction to some things. So, Good question. All right, let's pray and then we'll be dismissed.